0: evening, everyone. Uh, just before we turn to God's Word, I just want to mention, uh, I did this morning, that, that next uh, Sunday night we're beginning a new series on the Ten Commandments. Next Sunday, the little flyer should be in all the seats. Uh, next Sunday night is just an introductory uh, service, and then we'll be spending ten consecutive weeks looking at the Ten Commandments in reverse. One of the young guys from Windsor, uh, Stephen, designed these uh, posters for us based on each of the Ten Commandments, so uh, we'll be working our way through those during the next 11 weeks. Let me just read two verses, one from Creation Narrative and then one from a New Testament letter. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Some of you uh, might have read this or come across it before. If your output, if what you give out exceeds your input, what you take in, then eventually the shortfall will be your downfall. Uh, I'm not sure who it was that first said it, but Tony Horsfall, who was one of the seminar speakers at New Horizon this year, he quotes it in his book, Working from a Place of Rest, which I know a few of you have been reading this, or how many people have, have come across that book? Okay, just, just a couple. During July, we, uh, we spent three Sunday evenings uh, looking at and thinking about the need to slow down. To embrace the God-given gift of Sabbath, which, yes, is a day a week, but it's also an attitude of the heart. And we said that throughout any given week, we all need Sabbath moments. Where we just stop, where we breathe in, where we rest, and we find refreshment. Because if we don't, we're going to run ourselves into the ground, literally. And modern life is busy, we've said, it demands of us, and many within our culture are suffering from what has come to be called and what we have referred to as hurry, sickness, always feeling like you're running to catch up, and coming out with phrases like, if only I had more time. And I know for lots of us, uh, this series has struck a chord, but here we are on the last weekend of the summer. And as Trevor said, as Gordon, I don't know how you feel about that. Uh, School starts this week. Most of us have had our holidays. I know there are a few here who still have their holidays ahead of them. But most of us have had our holidays. And therefore there's a real sense, and a few of you are saying this to me this morning, there's a real sense that everything kicks off again this week. And so the output level is about to rise for lots of us. And so it's really, really important that the input level increases. Otherwise, we may experience a dangerous shortfall. Because if you're always given out, and there's lots here who are always given out, but if you're just always given out, if you're always busy, if you seldom take in, then you do risk imbalance. And if the gap between the output level and the input level, continues to widen, then you'll increasingly just feel tired and stretched and drained and exhausted and burnout may be a very real possibility. And at the very least, if busyness becomes the norm, then life just can seem like an issue of survival rather than a gift to enjoy. And if you are a Christian, a gift to enjoy to the full. So tonight we are going to think about, uh, and and I'm not going to spend that long doing it, I realise the time. But tonight we are going to think about one key area of output that's connected to the two verses that I read at the beginning. But before we we look at that key area of output, I want to give you two examples of input activities. Here are two things that I suggest we need if we're going to energise ourselves. That's these. Time with God. Focused time spent with God and leisure. And in some ways I'm recapping a little and adding some more. But you know one of the core ways of taking in, of resourcing our lives, of being refreshed is via time spent alone with God. You know if you reach a place in your life and I know how I've done this actually I do this frequently. if you reach a place in your life where you're too busy to spend alone time with God, then you're too busy. Now I know that you can spend time with God in a variety of settings, and this being one of them. There's there's no doubt about that. But we must also cultivate this discipline, this holy habit as we looked at last year, of being alone with God on a regular basis. And unless we slow down, that just won't happen. If, If you never slow down, it will not happen. But at the same time, when you intentionally make it happen, when you intentionally set aside time each day to be alone with your Father, then you're forced to slow down. And you're forced to inhale that refreshing, life-giving love of God. You see, time alone with God and the practice of spiritual disciplines of holy habits such as silence and prayer and reading and biblical meditation and reflection and contemplation, they will input into your life at a profound level. And what they will also do is they will help you to avoid shortfall and downfall in your spiritual life. And even, and even though this is, and, and my experience throughout life has been this, this is a real challenge. And I tend to start off every new church year with the intention of spending more alone time with God. And if it's not every church year, it's at least every calendar year. And I realize that actually I find that it's the alone time with God that becomes the leading casualty whenever I live a really busy life. It's the thing that goes. And yet it is the thing that refreshes and energizes and sustains me in my Christian life. And it needs to be a core and central and unmissable feature of your daily rhythm. It is part of what it means, and this is going back to the first week, to live each day well. How do you go about living each day well? Prayerfully, contentedly, gratefully. And part of that involves spending alone time with God. The second uh, input provider is leisure. You see, I believe we should pursue leisure. Maybe not something you always hear said from the front of a church. But leisure is those things we choose to do beyond the limits of work and duty... And it's undertaken for our pleasure and for our satisfaction. That's one definition. In writing about leisure in that book, Tony Horsville breaks it down into three areas. Relaxation, recreation, and play. Do you know, when our energy levels are low, we just need to relax. And relaxation activities, they tend to be passive in nature, so they include things like just lying and soaking in a bath. It's okay to do. Watching a DVD, reading a novel, Sleeping, just relaxing, resting. But recreation, on the other hand, it's generally active and involves the investment of some energy. And so things like sport for some people, going to the gym, gardening for some, walking, are all examples of recreation. Hobbies fall into that category. But in recreation, what you do is you focus on something else for a while. And in focusing on something else, as a result of that, your mind, your emotion, your body is renewed. And the third aspect of leisure is is play, and we spent the whole Sunday evening thinking about that issue, and I've had some very interesting reactions to that, and I really do appreciate those who have fed back to me what you thought about a whole sermon on play. I really have appreciated the feedback. But while I was away, and I did a little bit more reading on this, I came across this brilliant quote from a theologian and uh, a social reformer, and I can't pronounce his name, but this is what he said. The real joy of life is its play. Play is anything we do for the joy and love of doing it, apart from any profit, compulsion, or sense of duty. It is the real living of life with the freedom of feeling and self-expression. Play is the business of childhood, and its continuation in later years is the prolongation of youth. Real civilization should increase the margin of time given to play. You see, you and I need leisure time. We need to relax. We need recreational activities in our lives that we do enjoy, and we need to rediscover play. And so as we we step into September this week, and as life gets busy again, or busier uh, for many of us, then what I would encourage you to do is review, what is it that you're doing that inputs into your life? As life kicks off again, as you start to output, what is it that you do that inputs into your life? In two key ways is time alone with God, and leisure. Don't neglect those input providers. But let me just turn uh, to the one or the key output aspect of life that we're, where we give out the most. Can anybody tell me where that is? Where do the majority of people give out the most? Work. Absolutely. The jobs we do. You see, most of us, many of us spend most of our awake time at work. Apparently, the average person spends 88,000 hours of their lives at work. But you might think, why think about work as part of a series on slowing down and self-? Well, let me give you two reasons for that. And the first is this, that we need to learn to work from a place of rest. This is absolutely critical. Because we often think about along these lines, and that is that we rest after or from work. That is not the way we have been designed. And we've got to go back to creation to discover this because on the sixth day, God created human beings. But isn't it really interesting that the very first thing Adam and Eve did on their first full day alive on planet earth was what? They rested. The seventh day, day of rest. And it was from that launch pad and it was from that place that they then Began to work. Now, God may have worked for six days and then rested on the seventh. He did. But in terms of the God ordained rhythm of life for us, the created, we have been designed to work from a place of rest. And so, whenever we do get this round the wrong way, and I think we often do, whenever we don't prioritize rest and Sabbath then we inevitably hit problems because we work best, we work most effectively out of a place of rest. Whenever we pay attention to that input level, then we'll be much more fruitful and we'll live a much more balanced life. And when we neglect to slow down and when we try to work all the hours that God sends us, then we are heading for disaster or else what we end up doing is we end up living an unfulfilled and an ungodly life. Because it's not how he has created us. But apart from getting work in the right place or in the right order that we work from a place of rest, the second reason for including this in a series about Sabbath is to remind us of the importance of having and maintaining a right view of work, a biblical perspective. Because you see, in one sense, there's no point having a right view of rest and Sabbath and having a wrong view of work. And yet so many people, I believe, do have a wrong, in a sense, theology of work. And in addition, if you have a wrong or slightly skewed view of work, what you find is you end up resenting your job. You end up resenting it. So question for this evening. How do you feel about your job? How do you feel about the work you do. A recent uh, study I came across revealed that most people live between a grudging acceptance of their job and an active dislike of it. Where do you sit? The same study also discovered that most people are obsessed with their jobs and work consumes them. And so what you find here is this real tension. But let's be honest, because there are some days whenever you love your job. And there's some days when you just don't. And Mark Buchanan, I don't know how many of you have been to the Bangor Missionary Convention uh, this week, but Mark Buchanan's one of the speakers. And in his book, The Rest of God, here's what he writes. There are days you stretch out into your job like a wild horse, loosed after a tethering, thundering across open plains, gaining fresh strength with each stride. Other days... It's like dressing in wet denim or like having a root canal without anaesthetic. And the thing is, there's probably more of those latter type of days than we care to admit. But what we need to do is we need to get back to the creation narrative, to the book of Genesis, to the book of beginnings. To discover why is it that work sometimes feels the way it does. So let me read, and if you have a Bible, please turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, I just want to read verses 26, 27, 28. Familiar verses. Genesis 1, verse 26. And then God said, let us make human beings in our image, in our likeness. So that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky and over every living creature that works in the ground and the sense is that we and we know this we have been fashioned we have been made in the image of the creator and here in genesis 1 and as this goes on we encounter a god at work who creates people to work and so in genesis 2:15, the verse i read at the very beginning it says the lord god took the man he put him in charge of the garden of Eden. and what did he say to him i want you to work it and i want you to take care of it and so pre-fall Before everything went horribly wrong and sin entered paradise, man worked. That was part of God's original plan for human beings. So any notion that work is the result of the fall needs to be deleted and erased from our minds and our understanding. Work is not a curse. In fact, as someone has said, the idea that work itself is a curse may be one of the most stubborn myths of Western culture. But as the creation story continues, we discover exactly how things went badly wrong in that garden. There is a serpent, there's a deception, there's a compromise, there's a hiding, there's a blaming. The party's over. Sin infects infects Eden and God reacts. As God always does regarding sin, God reacts. And so Genesis 3 follows on from Genesis 1 and 2 and in verses 17 to 19 it says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns, it will produce thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. And what you discover is that work, like everything else in God's perfect creation, was affected, and it was impacted, and it suffered, and therefore it's no wonder that there are days when you feel as you do about your job. It's no wonder that sometimes it's like a burden. It's no wonder there are days you can just see your work far enough. Sin has done what to work what sin has done to so many aspects of life. But that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that we resign ourselves to this negative view of work that so many people have bought into. This understanding and this recognition from the creation narrative doesn't mean that that gives you a license to adopt a careless attitude towards work. Because as Bible-believing people, we embrace a gospel of change, a good news message of transformation, of realignment. And the challenge we face is to have and to grab hold of a renewed and a renewing view of work, despite of and in light of the struggles and pressures and demands and difficulties that many of you I know face within your work context. We were created to work, and that remains God's intention for us, even though it doesn't always bring the joy and the satisfaction and the meaning and the spark that it originally offered. We were created. To work, we still need to see it as a gift and as something that we do wholeheartedly for God. And that takes me to that second verse that I read from the New Testament at the beginning that amazing slice of biblical advice of how we should approach our jobs. Whatever you do, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. As working for the Lord, not for human masters. And so whatever you find yourself doing this week, whether that's painting a ceiling, preparing a spreadsheet, listening to a lecture, delivering a lecture, looking after kids, writing an article, caring for the sick, you are, as a child of God, and I know many of you are in that category, as a Christian, you're urged, do it for him. Do it, in other words, as an act of worship as an act of service Mark Green from the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity has written a lot on this subject and he provocatively suggests that many of us are like atheists when it comes to our work in other words we sometimes talk of work as if we don't believe God exists in that sphere of our lives and I don't know what just happened work needs to be seen as a core and a central act of worship. That's how we need, that's the perspective we need. It's not just a job. What we do in those 38, 40, whatever hours this week, it's not just for the NHS. It's not just for that company. It's not just for those clients. What we do this week, whether paid or not paid, is for Almighty God. It is the Lord's work and that's one of those deeply misunderstood and misused phrases and cliches in church world because whenever many people hear that someone is involved in the Lord's work they immediately assume they must be a church minister, a church employee, they must be serving with a mission organisation or agency it's a bit like that term full time Christian work and again the perception is that that's somehow what I do, or that's what Gordon does. And we've got to adopt and maintain and guard a deeper, richer and more biblical understanding of those phrases. We've got to accept and recognise that what all of us, all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, do this week, whether in that that office, that surgery, that classroom, that factory or that home, that all we do is the Lord's work. Every one of us who follow Jesus are in full-time Christian work. I don't for one moment believe that God values someone's work above someone else's. Not for a moment do I believe that. The issue is this, and here we get into a tricky one. What has God called you to do? And that may be to lead a church, to preach, to serve with Baptist missions. But equally it could be to design buildings, to teach kids, to balance books or to make meals. God may call you into a different job. He may lead you in an alternative direction. And how God does that is the subject of a whole series of sermons. But until he does, until you hear that voice, then do what you're doing. And do it well. Do it wholeheartedly as if you were serving God. Listen to Paul's advice to Christians. Who have nearly done. Paul's advice to Christian slaves who probably thought that now they were Christians, God's going to call me to do something different, something more important than being a slave. Slaves, oh, slaves obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord and not men. And see, Paul was wanting these Ephesian Christians to adopt an alternative mindset to their work. To think differently. And remember what we said on week two of these series. That if if you're going to live differently, you've got to learn to think differently. Differently. That's why Paul says we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Because we will behave differently as we learn to think differently. So how we perceive work and what we think of what we do really does matter. And for me, a biblical perspective or a right view of work involves this. It's seeing it as a gift. It's seeing it as something that was intended by God. It's seeing it as a reflection of his image and also as an act of worship and service. And if we can adopt, and if I can adopt that outlook, then it probably will alter my attitude to this week as everything kicks off again. And so back to the opening equation. In order, if output exceeds input, then the shortfall will be your downfall. And work is a key area of output in our lives. And the low We always need adequate input, we always need time with God, we need leisure. If we can also learn to work from a place of rest, and if we can learn to have a right view of work, then I suggest you will limit the input, or limit the uh, the shortfall, and stay away from potential downfall. Now as we close this series, I, I have a present for everybody here tonight. And it's sort of traditional that whenever you come back from holiday, you bring presents. I didn't bring these back from holiday. But I sort of thought, what can I give people? Something tangible to take away with them at the end of a series that actually reminds them of rest, of work, and of play. And so, here's what I'm going to give you all. I have a Mars bar for everybody. Because, as we all know, what does it say? A Mars a day helps you work, rest, and play. And so what I want you to do, I don't want you to eat this Mars bar, right? I want you to take this Mars bar home. No, seriously, don't, don't eat this. I'm actually not even sure I've got enough to go around, but anyway, because uh, I didn't expect this many. Uh, what I want you to do is I want you to take this home and I want you to set it somewhere. okay? To set it off a desk somewhere just at home. And every time you look at it, just remember am I having a right attitude about my work am I resting adequately properly and am I playing so you can grab one of these on the way out as you go this evening